Thank you, Keith, for leading us this morning. Sherry um, gave Jason a week off, and uh, we're delighted that he had that opportunity and delighted that we've got folks that have the talent and the ability to lead us in his absence. We are in a series called Vision 2020, and today we are wrapping that series up. Um, our text is going to come from Matthew chapter 5. Before we get to our text, I would like to share with you just real briefly um, what we've covered over the last many weeks. Um, I have a slide for you here that identifies or defines what Christian maturity is. Many weeks back, we looked at Galatians chapters 1 and 2, and we saw there Paul gives this statement, I've been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Paul is communicating this, this message this revelation that he's had, that his life can be changed, that his life can be transformed. And then he goes on to say, hey, this is what that transformation looks like. I went from a guy who was really angry all the time, who was impatient, who was going around throwing people in jail and, and doing all sorts of things to, to the Christians, to becoming somebody who is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He calls these the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5 verses 22 and 23. So Paul says, I've become, I've changed. I've been transformed from who I was, the old person that I was, to this new person that I've become. He says, Christ lives in me in Galatians 2.20. That is Christ-likeness has become, defined who I am. It's become the substance of who I am. It's become my character. It's become my motives. It's become my drives. It's become my instincts. Um, it's what defines me. So Paul's saying, hey, look, I've become a truly changed person. Well, our text today is perhaps the most uh, poignant statement in all of Scripture to, uh, to, to, that sets alongside Galatians 2.20, and it comes directly from the words of Jesus himself. It's part of the Sermon on the Mount that identifies what Christian maturity is or what Jesus is asking for us to strive for. Um, it's this pivotal point in the Sermon on the Mount around which all of the Sermon on the Mount revolve. It's just one verse, and it comes to us from Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. I'm going to ask for you to stand to your feet. For the reading of God's Word, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, part of the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what Jesus says. Y'all read with me. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You may be seated. See, you didn't even have a chance to get your, your, your pants adjusted. Um, but again, Jesus, this is the, around this statement. It's a monumental statement that Jesus makes here. And again, it's, it's the statement around which the whole of the Sermon on the Mount revolves. So let's take a look at this statement that Jesus makes here. First of all, he says, therefore, and therefore tells you that we need to find out what it's... That's right, therefore. So we've got to look back at chapter 5. We'll do that here in just a few moments and realize that this statement is connected to things that he said before, and what we're going to see is that it's also connected to the statements that are going to come after it. But then he says after that, therefore, which we'll get to in a few moments, he says to be perfect. You say, is Jesus serious? I mean, Really? Is Jesus asking for me to live life perfect? What does he have in mind when he says perfection? What are his thoughts here? What is, is this even possible? What is Jesus saying when he says perfection? Well, some, believe, some uh, Bible scholars have suggested that Jesus is merely speaking with hyperbole. That is, Jesus is overstating the point or overstating the issue for the sake of making a point. So Jesus doesn't actually mean that we're supposed to be perfect. He doesn't actually expect that we would be perfect. He's just stating this kind of hyperbole for the, to try and cause us to strive to want to be more and more uh, like him. Other folks have said that Jesus is here talking about some sort of an ideal, um, that, he's, that his, his, when he says to be perfect, he just means I want to craft the ideal of, a Christian, of the Christian life, and so that's what I want for you to strive for. Again, he doesn't have any expectations that we would actually live perfectly. 
So what does Jesus mean by perfection, and what are his expectations that we would actually be able to live this way? Well, let's first consider the Greek meaning of the word that occurs there in the text. It comes from the term teleos. Teleos means complete. It means finished. It means wanting nothing. And so Jesus is saying, be wanting nothing. Be in a state of completeness. Be in a state of finished. Um, and now, if you look at all the other examples that Jesus has just given us here in Matthew chapter 5 of what this finished work might look, look like or what this complete work might look like of what wanting nothing might look like, he's got example after example after example in chapter 5 that lead up to this statement. And all of these examples define how we relate to other people. And so let me give you just a couple of what those are. Here's a chart of some of those examples. You see Jesus taught on being salt and on being light to others. Jesus taught on not being angry to the point of sin. Jesus taught on not looking upon others with lustful eyes. Jesus taught, upon, taught on loving your enemies. And so all of these are examples of what perfection in our interaction with other people might look like. And so these are just examples of those. Secondly, if you look at what comes after verse 48, um, in chapter 6, we see examples of what perfection toward God would look like. So I got another chart here for you, and this shows what perfection and how we relate to God would look like. For example, Jesus points out that we would pray in a certain way, that we would give in a way that's not to be seen by men, but rather that just to be seen um, by God. He suggested how we would fast, that we'd fast properly and with sincerity of heart, not again to be seen by men. So Jesus's concept of perfection is pretty well spelled out in these chapters, in this sermon. It's how we relate to others and how we relate to to God himself. So Jesus says, be perfect. That's not a suggestion. That's not wishful thinking. This is actually a command statement that Jesus makes. And for those that would suggest, well, he's just speaking in hyperbole, or he's just suggesting some ideal, he would not have said that if he, in, in a command type of way, if that was the case. So for Jesus, he is commanding us to raise our game, to strive for perfection, both in the way that we relate to others and in the way that we relate to God. Y'all with me? And you nodded your head yes. Okay, very, are you sure you're with me? Do we need to go back through some of that? We can bring the slides back up here. Now, so Jesus has this idea that how we relate to others and how we relate to, maybe it's just the idea of it is kind of throwing us off this morning, right? So how we relate to others and how we relate to God, that we can strive for this and that this is possible in this life. Remember Paul said, Galatians 2.20, I no longer live. The old person that I used to be is gone. He's dead, he's gone, he's been crucified. I've come to this point, I've come to this cusp of walking with Christ this place of maturity where I no longer live, the old person that I was is gone, and now what fills its place is Christ living in me. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Okay, well, that's our treatment of this text for today, and so that means it's time for us to ask the question we ask every week around here. What difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, I appreciate what Jesus is saying, uh, but I, to get where Jesus is suggesting that I get, I'd have to go join a monastery, right? I'd have to go sing with the monks. Um, I'd have to go be a professional missionary preaching out in the mission field someplace. Uh, I, what difference does any of this make to me? I'm just a regular guy living in a regular world. What difference does this make to my life? Well, that's a really great question. Let's see if we can answer that. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I asked for my father to pray. He sits over here. He's not here this morning. My mom and him uh, headed back up to Delaware visiting with some family. Um, I asked for my dad to pray. And for those of us that were here and heard him pray, he wept. Y'all, for those of you who are here, do you remember that? He wept, and he prayed, and he wept some more, and he prayed. Ah, come by it honestly, right? 
Um, as my wife has said many years ago on our first date, you're my kind of woman. <laughs> to which I responded, and you're my kind of man. But I do, I come by it honestly, and my dad, I mean, he, he just lives as close to Jesus as anybody that I know. Um, he every morning gets up, he sits down with his Bible in his lap, he prays. He's done this for the 45 years that I've been here on this earth, as, far, as long as I can remember. He prays, his Bible's in his lap, he prays for me, he prays for my brother, he prays for our spouses, he prays for his grandchildren, he prays, he knows the Lord, he lives closely with the heart of God. He spent 30 years working as a public educator, as an elementary school principal, um, and he was loved by his students. His students called him the captain. You can imagine this big six-foot-four man. He was much thicker back then, uh, walking the hallways with his thick mustache and his gray hair. And the reason why they called him the captain was not just because perhaps he reminded them of some big giant man, but because he reminded them of a fella back in the long days ago that kids used to watch on TV. Does anybody remember who that guy was that had a mustache and really gray hair? Captain Kangaroo. Okay, all right, we're not too dated here this morning. And so that, he reminded them of Captain Kangaroo as he was walking down through the hallways, and so they called him the captain, and it stuck over the years. Um, his teachers loved him, his students loved him, and he ran that school in a really tough uh, part of town that had students coming from all sorts of difficult home life situations, and he ran that school uh, as well as anybody could. And, and it's funny how I would go out to dinner with him at a restaurant years later after I was grown, come back home from college, and people would come by and they'd say, hey, captain, right? And they'd want to stop and talk to him. He'd probably spank those kids a couple of times and lit them up over the years, but they had such deep respect for him. He had the person of Christ living and breathing inside of him, the love, the joy, the peace, the Holy Spirit was vibrant in his life, and you heard that um, expressed in his prayer. Jesus said, be perfect. I can tell you that in as much as what that Jesus had in mind, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, my dad lived that as well as anyone. The Apostle Paul said, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1, he said, be imitators of me. Well, that's kind of an interesting statement, that Paul would suggest that people could actually emulate himself. He says, as I am of Christ. Be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. He, Paul actually had this notion, had this idea, had had this experience that he had lived like Jesus lived, that he had the same motives, the same instincts, the same fullness of life, the same love that Jesus had. Over in Ephesians, Paul gives the expectations, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 22, to put off your old self. Paul thought that we could change. Paul himself had changed. Remember the kind of man that he was before, and now he's someone different. He said, he said which belongs to your former manner of life, verse 24, put the, on the new self, created after the likeness of God in the true righteousness of holiness. You know the goal of the Christian life is not so that you can make it to heaven. You all know that, right? That's the start of the Christian life. When you trust the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, when you turn to him and ask him to forgive you, to enter into your life, to become your savior, friends, heaven becomes your eternal home. That's the start of the Christian life. That's not the goal of it. The goal of the Christian life is to become more and more and more like Jesus, to become a person who is more filled with joy, more filled with love, more filled with gentleness and all those fruits of the Spirit. 
Now, over the last several weeks, we have defined Christ-likeness, again, as those fruits of the Spirit. And Jesus thought that you and I could become these things. He commanded us to strive for this. Paul experienced it. Many saints down through the ages have experienced this. And friends, you and I can experience too. Experience it too. You say, Gordon, again, I appreciate the thought, but isn't this more something for the monks who live in the monastery? Um, how, How can a regular person like me who goes to work nine to five, who's raising a family, who's you know trying to make ends meet, who's trying to plan for our future, how can a person like me become somebody like that? Well, I have... Did anybody get these this morning? No. <laughs> okay, well, you can pick one up on your way out today. But these are some cards. I've actually got on the slide behind me, so that's okay. Um, but you'll be getting these over the course of the next couple of weeks. And what this card is, is it defines three categories, and we've talked about these over the last many weeks, of how you and I can put ourselves in a position where the Holy Spirit can work in our life, can work in our heart, and begin that change, uh, change that can be that change agent in our life, where we can put ourselves in a place where the Holy Spirit can work and produce some of that change in us. And uh, the, one of those categories is for us to totally surrender ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That is to give him control of our life. That is to stop arguing with God about the direction of things, to stop having uh, sit-ins when the Lord asks us to go and do something, but rather to just obediently say, Lord, my life belongs to you, and you get to choose where I go. And so a couple of the ways that you and I, in the course of the coming year, remember, because this is Vision 2020, it's interesting to me as we were in my own home group, one of the things that we have been talking about was, that this series has not been about some next egg drop that we're going to do here at the church that's going to bring a bunch of people in and from, the, from around the surrounding community or some big program change that we're going to make here at the church, but it's been about what God wants to do in your life and how he's going to accomplish that and how you and I, the things that you and I can do to help him accomplish that or to p- position ourselves in a way that he can so that we're hearing from him, from his Holy Spirit, Um, in the coming year. And so one of those things that we can do, you see that under option number one, is this thing called the Emmaus, uh, attend the Emmaus Walk. The Emmaus Walk is a weekend coming up, I believe it's in April. There's a men's walk followed by a women's. Uh, The men go the first weekend, the ladies go the second. You leave on a Thursday evening, you're there Friday, Saturday, come back Sunday. You eat a lot. There are 15 talks that you'll hear over the course of the weekend. You don't have to say anything. You don't have to pray in public. You just come and you get to listen. Um, And what you'll experience over the course of that weekend is just the fullness of God. Uh, You'll just be refreshed in your spirit, and the Lord will just fill you up with his love, and uh, and you'll come home uh, refreshed and revived and ready to to go and and, and serve the Lord. Um, This weekend is uh, not—there's nothing secretive about it. It's just a really fun, wonderful experience for you to go and experience this refreshing of the Holy Spirit of God. And so we hope that some of you will choose— because you're going to get these cards, and you'll say um, that, hey, look, that's something I might like to do um, in the coming year, in 2020. And I not just mention that because some of you haven't been, but I also want for some of you who have, not, who have gone to go and work that weekend. There'll be 20 to 30 people who have never attended this weekend before that will be there. Then there'll be about another 30 people who are going to work. They're going to feed you, right? You got a whole crew of people. They're going to take care of you all weekend. They're going to make your bed for you. They're going to clean up after you. Uh, they're going to sing you songs. You'll see Jason Power up on the uh, uh, up front leading worship. I'll probably be there myself as one of the clergy that's there helping to facilitate some of the communion and some of those sorts of things that take place over the course of the weekend. 
So my challenge is not just for those of you who haven't been to go, but my challenge is for some of you who have been to go and work, to go be part of the crew that serve. Um, Another one of the ways that you can um, put yourself in a place where you can experience a total surrender to God is through going on a short-term missions uh, team or short-term missions project. Um, We're looking at two projects for the coming year. We'll talk to you more about those in the coming months. Uh, We think we know where one of them is going to be. The other one we're still working on. One in the spring, probably one in the summer or fall. And so if that's something where you think, you know what, the Lord wants to work in my life. He wants to create some of those changes. He wants to increase the joy, the love, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the gentleness, the self-control in me. Then perhaps I need to go and be a part of a short-term missions team. And so we um, want you to consider being a part of one of those. And then I threw an option out here as well where you get to fill in the blank. Um, where it's like, hey, I don't know what that might be that I go and do, but I, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to pray and ask the Lord what he wants to accomplish in me or what he wants to do with, with me or where he wants to send me, and I'm going to leave that open to him. Um, and then there's some other things um, there as well. Moving down through the list, the categories, um, participating in Christian community. Um, the first one under that, participating in Christian community, one of the ways that we can participate in Christian community is simply by being here on Sunday morning. Um, I've got a couple of statistics that I want to share with you, and I don't have them memorized, so I'm going to have to look at the screen with you. Um, we took those attendance pads that y'all been filling out since Easter. I know that's a new thing that we started doing this year. And so I had a couple of folks from our church uh, go through, and they've been keeping an Excel spreadsheet, and it's remarkable what they've done and how they are able to use Excel. And so they created these statistics, and you can see this on this chart behind me, on this graph behind me, that we've some... Since Easter, if you take tw- there's been 25 Sundays since Easter, and if you take the first seven of those, um, there were we had 19 folks that showed up at church out of 25 Sundays at least seven times. Okay, people that were here on Easter Sunday that said we're here, and so we started from there. Uh, 19, 19 families. I say 19 folks. 19 families that were here at church at least seven times out of 25 Sundays. You can see the next uh, part on our graph is that we had 21 families that showed up here at church 8 to 12 times, so at least 12 times. And between 8 times and 12 times, out of the 25 Sundays we've been keeping track, we had 21 families that showed up. And then you can see the third step there, which is kind of where the, the mass, most massive folks were, is that we had 28 families, 28 households represented, that showed up between 13 and 18 times out of those 25. And then the last category there is that we had 10 folks that showed up, or 10 families, households that showed up, between 19 and 25 times, 19 and 25 Sundays. Um, I'm going to ask if the, uh, if, if, uh, um, I'm going I'm to go ahead and put some people on the spot. If Miss Mary Francis would stand up, if Jim Burrell would stand up, and if uh, Tammy and Robert Cooper would stand up. Jim's out counting right now. He is here. These folks were on the far, far, far end. Y'all can sit back down of the list. Isn't that wonderful? Um, they set the bar even for the preacher. You beat me. Um, so, uh, so great, great job to y'all. We thank you for, for being a part of Hebron. Um, and we know this is not an exact science. We had folks that were out serving in the nursery that didn't get to sign in on the few pads that particular Sunday. We had folks that were serving down in Little K that didn't, somebody didn't get to sign in. Their husband wasn't here that Sunday. They were home with kids. So for whatever reason, we know this is not an exact science, but it just gives you a sense of how the church um, has done over the last 25 Sundays. Now, I got another slide for you that I want to show, and here's what we're asking you to do. As you look at this chart, right, you look at your little graph here, and it says a 10x number of Sundays per year, or per uh, two months, is we're asking you to grow one step. 
So I don't know what category you're in. I have not looked at the statistics, okay? I have no idea where the, what, what names fit into, fit into which of the statistics. But here's what I'm asking to do. If you think, hey, look, I, here's the, the, which one of those steps I belong in. We're asking you to grow one step next year. And so we're asking you to say, hey, what, you, you know what, I, over the course of a year, 52 Sundays, right? And I'm going to try and m- meet X number of Sundays per year. And what, how many Sundays does that mean I'm going to have to be here out of two months? I think you can keep track of two months. So, um, so that's what this is. This is you saying, hey, look, this is how many Sundays I'm going to be here every two months. And then try to keep that as a goal for yourself in 2020 next year. Everybody okay? Okay, doke. All right, looking at the next one, it says participate in small groups. That is Sunday school, Wednesday night, church, some sort of a home group. Um, and so just being plugged in there. If you're not plugged in on one of those already, we're asking to step out and participate in Christian community. So go from just being a part of our Sunday worship service to saying, hey, look, I'm going to find a smaller group where I'm known, where people know my name, know what's going on in my life, and I'm checking in with each week. Perhaps you're there learning some, uh, some doing some Bible study together with other believers. And... Um, and being a part of that, but we're asking to do that. So if you're not currently participating in that, maybe you'd circle that option. And then the third option that you see down the line says the men's and women's fellowship groups. These are the breakfasts that we have every month. The guys are getting together next Sunday. The ladies always get together the second Sunday of the month. We hope that you'll come out and participate in Christian community together. This is not just getting together to eat, although we enjoy that part of it, but this is getting together with other believers, being encouraged by being in the presence of other believers, and again, letting people have that opportunity to know what's going on in your life. And then the accountability groups. And we have several of those that are happening around the church. The last thing that I want to point out here on the, um, on the uh, categories is to uh, uh, the daily quiet time. This may include reading a chapter in your Bible. This may include reading a daily devotional, praying, saying, hey, look, I'm going to pray five minutes a day. God, I'm, I'm making that pledge to you, right, in the coming year that I'm going to pray for five minutes a day. I'm going to pray for 10 minutes a day or however long it may be. And you hold that as, a, as part of your plan for growth, as part of positioning yourself in a place where the Holy Spirit of God can work in you such that joy fills your life, such that love becomes what defines you. And that self-control just oozes from every pore of your body. Wouldn't that be wonderful? This uh, passage that we read a few moments ago, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, was included in the Bible and written in the Bible by Matthew the tax collector. Matthew the tax collector um, had a collection booth. um, And the way these collection booths worked back in biblical times was the Romans, you know, they, they was the, the Jews lived on, in the, under Roman rule. They were part of the Roman Empire. And so the Romans, to fund their army and to fund their building projects, wanted to collect money from all their subjects. So they accomplished that through taxes. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that uh, they would do is they would, they would bid these tax booths out. So they had booths all over the Roman Empire. And they would be in certain regions, certain areas, perhaps along certain roadways. And uh, these tax booths, uh, somebody would come forward and say, I could collect a half a million dollars in taxes for you, the Romans. And the Romans would say, okay, anybody think they can collect more than half a million dollars? And somebody would say, well, I think I can collect $600,000 in taxes. And then we'll give, disperse that to you, the Romans, at the end of the year. Somebody else steps up, Matthew, the tax collector, perhaps says, hey, I'm going to collect a million dollars worth of taxes in the coming year. 
off of that particular tax booth. So that's the kind of revenue that you, the Romans, can expect is going to come out of that tax booth. And I pledge to you that you're going to get a million dollars to the Romans. Now, what the Romans would do is they would allow Matthew to collect a million dollars out of that particular tax booth. And then he, anything he collected above that went in Matthew's pocket. And that's how the tax collection system worked. You collected taxes, fulfilling your pledge to the Romans, and then anything you collected above that was yours to pocket as a tax collector. And so um, I've got a map for you here. I want to just point out, if I could, where Matthew's tax collection booth was. His tax collection booth sat at the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee. And if you look at this map, you can see Mesopotamia. You can see what's now a modern-day Iraq, modern-day Iran. And then there's this big kind of fertile crescent, they called it. It was a half-moon shape that came down and around um, into Israel and down into Egypt. So there's a good bit of trade goods that came up from Egypt and that came down from Mesopotamia. This was a part of the world that everybody wanted to control. Matthew's tax collecting booth sat right on Interstate 85, coming down from the north into the south and vice versa. It sat at the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee, right where the trade goods were all coming through. So all of these goods that were coming north and south, Matthew got a little piece of all of that, which means, and scholars have, have um, corroborated this, is that Matthew had the most lucrative tax-collecting booth in all of Judea. So none of the other Jews that had tax-collecting booths, none of the other Jews that had, were considered tax collectors collected as much money, as much revenue, as Matthew the tax collector did which also means that Matthew had the most opulent house in the whole area, that Matthew had more money in his pocket, more money to spend, more parties, because he was really into that. Um, he had all the things that went along with that. He had the entourage that would follow him around. Um, he had all those things going on. Um, and, so he, and, and again, the way that he collected all these taxes, the way that he got all this money was by overcharging, right, the government's take of the profits of hardworking men and women. So they had taxes they were supposed to pay Rome, and then Matthew overcharged on all of that in order to support his own lifestyle and his own self. They funded his parties. They funded his bank accounts. One day Matthew went out, and he was heard about a guy who had been preaching, performing miracles, and he was causing quite a stir in that area, just north of the Sea of Galilee, Matthew, being a local politician, you might say, wanted to go and check all this out. And he hears Jesus say words like, be salt and light. Love your enemies. Let your yes be yes, and your no be no. If somebody would compel you to go with them one mile, go with them also two. Turn the other cheek. Be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And then Matthew chapter 9 and verse 9, Matthew records these words, and I'll end with this. It says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his booth. And Jesus said to him, follow me. And Matthew rose up and he followed Jesus. When Matthew heard that Sermon on the Mount, he was not one of Jesus' disciples. He was a local politician coming out to investigate this rabble-rouser, wanting to protect his own 
money and his own livelihood. But what Matthew heard was a call to change. Matthew realized that even he, even he, the most unscrupulous perhaps man in all of Judea, could be transformed. He could become love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. Friends, the Lord Jesus calls you and I to that same place of maturity. It's not some statement of hyperbole. It's not some statement of ideal. It is something that can become a reality in your life. Bow our heads again. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we know that there's nothing that we can do to change us. We've tried that. It is your Holy Spirit and our cooperation with your Holy Spirit that changes us, that transforms us from the inside out. And so, Lord, we've got this card here. We've heard these ways that we can participate with you. And yet, Lord, we do need to say with some manner of intention that we are not just passive recipients of what you do, but, Lord, that you call us to take action. You call us to position ourselves in ways where your Holy Spirit can operate and work that change out in our lives. And already some of us over these past weeks have been hearing your still small voice calling us like you called Matthew. Follow me to something greater, to become what we wish we always could have become, but were unable to facilitate. Lord, as we gather around this table this morning, we are reminded of your broken body and of your shed blood, which makes all these things possible. And as we look toward the coming year, may we look with excitement and anticipation of what you are going to accomplish in each of our lives. We thank you, Jesus, for fresh vision of what we can become. We submit these quiet moments to you in Christ's holy name.